Yes. Seven fat years, seven lean years. It's the bonus episode that took me a month and a half to write. I am so sorry. Well, technically, Liam was supposed to write it. Uh, yeah, no, Liam was supposed to write it and handed it off because Liam had burnout. <laughs> uh, we were we were both, but we had, we had a difficult. You don't want to hear our excuses. You know who we are, but we have a guest, and we are here to talk about museums. Yes, guest, tell us about museums. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, I'm Jeremy Monroe. I work at the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art. I also am very active in the museum uh, labor movement uh, to unionize museum workers. Um, museums are bad. Uh, they could be better, but they're generally pretty bad. And we're going to tell you why. That's right. So first I thought we'd get into what is a museum, right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a building oh, that I don't has have I don't have, pretty I don't pictures have these in notes. Can someone send me these notes, please? <laughs> <laughs> the, the link, the link, the link is, oh my God. I'm using my, no, I had a separate... Uh, hold on, one Liam. Second, hold on. I'll Bye. put it in the Zencaster chat. Liam, do you not know Good what a museum is? Hey, Jeremy, <laughs> I've met you in person. I will come down there and rearrange you. <laughs> you, you will be looking like a Picasso painting by the end of it. I will. I will singularly, singularly invent realistic cubism. <laughs> a museum is a place that contains stuff. Uh, Next slide, please. Oh, see, okay. my slides were kind of in here. Uh, I was looking at a, a okay, yeah, right, okay, cool. Oh, okay. All right, so, so this is this is some stuff. Yes. Um, stuff was invented very early in human history. Um, when people started like finding cool rocks or like making little lumps of clay into shapes. Um, because we're we're social animals. We like making stuff and having stuff made for us. And also we like showing the stuff that we have to other people as a flex. Yes. Now, obviously, um in primitive societies, everything was fine because they lived in, you know, uh communism, which was good, or anarchism, which was good. Uh but Thank you, Alice. At, at some point, we have to talk about the concept of possession. Uh, like, this is my stuff, not your stuff, it is exclusive to me. Um, and thankfully English is very literal, a thing is your possession when you possess it, and you possess it by maintaining physical control over it. Mm -hmm. You possess enough of it, M or it's nice M enough, much and it's like treasure. A, uh, much like a demon possesses. Yes, absolutely. And then you, in order to, in order to end, uh, that possession, you need to be exercised, of, of course. <laughs> Um. <laughs> yeah, it, I thought it was really weird when Roz was possessed by a demon that the priest just kept telling him to bike further. Yeah, yeah, just walk it off, walk it off, walk um, it off. <laughs> <laughs> now, at some point, you have enough stuff that you stop being able to physically have a hand on everything you own, and this leads to the creation of laws, which is uh, widely regarded as one of humanity's worst mistakes. Cosine. Yes. Yes. I mean, it led to me going to law school for several years, so I I, I, ho I took that very personally. I, um, I literally work in like property law and museums, basically, because you know we mm, I make sure we acquire the things, so I can confirm property law not great. Different different kinds of uh, imaginary ways of possessing things in order to get people in trouble at some remove. Um, 
But <laughs> even with the the protection of law, without like a central legal system, you want to keep your your possessions, your treasures secured, right? You can do this in any number of ways, right? You can put them in a big box and lock it. You can put it underground in a hole. Uh, you can put them in a big defensible building. But the better you secure these things, the harder it is to take them out and show them to people to be like, look at my cool thing. Either like just to do that or for some like more involved religious or civic function. And so there is immediately a tension there, right? Which we will come back to. Next slide, please. Ah, in early XKCD. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Written, written by a young scientist called Onfim in Novgorod. Um, at some point, we invent writing. Writing, also a huge mistake because it leads to posting. Uh, but writing allows you to make knowledge and stories and narratives into movable, transferable, securable goods. It also gives you some like uh, kudos, some, some cool points, right? Like you have a lot of scrolls or a lot of books, and that means you're a smart person. And people still believe this. But also, you need somewhere to put them, right? Sure. Uh, <laughs> now, mm -hmm. this develops into different forms. In the classical Greek perception, each of the nine forms of art epic poetry, sacred poetry, lyric poetry, history, comedy, tragedy, astronomy, music, and dance is personified by a goddess, a muse, who inspires, literally, like, breathes into you the thing. Um, ask me for the names of the muses because I know that shit for some fucking reason. Well, Alice, what, what are, are the names, names of, of the muses? muses? Al Alice. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, Euterpe, Calliope, Cleo, Talia, Melpomene, Terpsichore, Eraso, Polyhymnia, and Urania. Wait, does the muse in museum have anything to do with the muses? We'll get to that in the next slide. Jeremy, god damn it, stop looking ahead! <laughs> no, I'm learning! <laughs> 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 so if you have a place for muses, that's a museon or a museum if you want to speak Latin. A, a mauseon, I'm or seeing. Or a museum here. if you're from Baltimore and don't know how to fucking talk. That's right. <laughs> the man who lives now, in Philly said unironically. <laughs> <laughs> the Baltimore accent and the Philly accent are like the same accent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first museum, uh, which was just called the Museum, built by one of the Ptolemies uh, in Alexandria in the fourth century BCE. A lot of things, not actually a museum, not to us. It's more like a university. Uh, it's got like a lot of scholars there who are kept sort of uh, provided for, uh, and you know live in it and work together, and it has a library. But the relevant part of this is the name. We have a we see here a man looking angrily at a scroll. Mm -hmm. we also Aren't we see, all? Yes. I like that this 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 uh this print here is just like basically the equivalent of like B-roll of a documentary where like they had to get everybody in a room to like do things, and it's like, oh hey, can you read a scroll like really Really, you know, seriously. <laughs> can you frown at this scroll? Hey, hey, they, you got guy? Could you uh, bend over with like a bunch of scrolls, but you would never actually carry them like that? <laughs> no, he's, he's picking something up off the floor. Yeah, it's like a university prospectus oh. where it's like, go ahead and eat lunch in this one courtyard. No one actually eats lunch in, you know. 
I'm in a I'm in a this university is, class, but we're being taught outside. This is I love to lie on some grass. I'm here at the 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 university orientation for uh, the museum. Yes, <laughs> this is gonna so, this, this, this tuition is gonna bankrupt me. They want like three <laughs> talents for three years. <laughs> <laughs> On the bright side, at least now, uh, regardless of being banked with university tuition, you don't have to uh, do your finals on scrolls. <laughs> yes, but they, so, did, they did make you work off your debt in the fields. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's called co-op. Duh, don't do that anymore. Oh. So, so crucially, <laughs> crucially, the museum is not a museum. Uh, what is a museum is the next slide. What we think of as functionally a museum, which is a place you, you put your stuff and you show it to people, right? For like civic purposes. Um, if you use it for religious purposes, that's more of a temple kind of deal. But like, if you're just trying to like educate and edify and entertain people, that's more perhaps what we think of as a museum. And this is the first one that we know about. It's uh, in Iraq, in what was the city of Ur. Uh, How do you think it got that name? Ur? Ur. Uh, or... you think, you think, oh, uh, you think have you heard of its someone, sister someone, city either? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you think uh, someone was like, well, what should we name the city? And the other guy was like, Ur. Ur. If I'm, I don't think I'm wrong. Uh, Yucatan... Uh, apparently was, and I forgive me for not knowing the uh, indigenous people's names on the top of my head. I know, I think, uh, was their uh, phrase for "I can't understand you," and so the Spanish were like, "Ah, Yucatan." <laughs> I may be wrong. Please don't come for me in the comments. <laughs> I just heard that. If it so, if it is the like uh situation, like that's like the DC Metro, the station Metro Center is just called Metro Center because the first Wilmada general was. An actual general, and he was like, "You have two seconds to give a name to this station." And the guy went Metro Center, which is this in DC <laughs> parlance. It just means uh, you know, when we talk, yeah. we just go like, "Oh, I don't know what to say next." Uh, Metro Center. Yes, mm. uh, which is so, ironic because, of course, Lafont Plaza has more lines going through it. <laughs> mm. So in God damn bro, you, the, 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 the the Metro Center of Mesopotamia. <laughs> Boom. In the 6th century BCE, there was a woman who lived there, who was the king's daughter, and who occupied a series of roles including priestess, scribe, and teacher. And train and operator. And train oh, operator. Train operator. <laughs> and in 550 BCE, she had constructed for her a terminus station <laughs> to be filled with objects that she and her dad had dug up that were old. Explicitly for the purpose of allowing people to like marvel at them. So, are they also the first archaeologists? Yes, that we know of. So, I, um, I asked that because my dad was asking that question because he wanted to know we were recording tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the, the the development of archaeology and the development of museums are very, very closely linked. That makes sense. Uh, and it, because you, you know, if you write stuff on stone, it, it, you know, stays up for a long time. We have the inscriptions of these. Um, her dad, presumably supportive of all this, because one of the inscriptions says, May Belshatinana, the daughter, beloved of my heart, be strong before them, and may her word prevail. Which is very nice. That's sweet. Um, yeah. So, this is like, surprisingly like what we think of as a museum. Like, it's 
objects dug out of the ground, put on display, curated with like labels explaining what they are. Um, and since this was probably part of a temple complex and a school, it's got like a religious and an educational purpose. Um, and what's interesting is this is like the first and last purpose-built museum that we know of for a while. Do you think like do you think like people walked in, see all the ancient artifacts, and like? Oh, that's just from Ted's house, man. It's five fifty BC. This isn't so impressive. We're all archaeological uh, uh, remnants by now. <laughs> what the Sumerian for exit through gift shop is? <laughs> what if they had like the MoMA gift shop or OG was there though? You know, like what would they be selling? <laughs> Yeah, you can get like a little, a little miniature, a little, like Etruscan um, bore Ta- vessel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little, little tablet keychain. <laughs> Still doesn't have your name on it. Next slide, please. Oh, so yeah. they definitely had like little keychains with your name on it. Oh yeah, chiseled in clay. You know, M- my son is also named Bort Shalti Nana. Um, <laughs> So, just blasting through history here to get through this first part. Uh, Like, antiquity, right? People don't stop having cool stuff to show off, but uh, (laughs) there are sort of three diverging paths here. Path one, you use it for more, like, explicitly religious purposes, like you put your cool stuff in temples. Path two, you just keep it in your house. And, like, you might show it to visitors, but not to, like, the general public. And path three, if you want to show off stuff to people in general, you just do that outside. Um, And I'm going to be really, really annoying here and say that a Roman triumph is a museum. Oh, this is okay. This is what we see here. That okay? So, so I this is like I'm glad you said that because this is my whole thing. Is that actually a lot of things in the world that aren't we don't think of as museums or museums? Or, mm-hmm. or like art exhibitions, like for example, like video games or museums. Like how is mm-hmm. how is playing a first person video game not walking through like a art exhibition? Anyways, the opening to uh, the videos they'd show you in school, where the, where the opening was like you know the the, the traveling through the weird museum thing. Oh, oh the yeah, eyewitness yeah, yeah. videos. No, the eyewitness uh, videos. Yeah. Dolan Kindersley eyewitness. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I, I will say if you don't think uh, the intro to Quake Four is art, uh, we can't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, like in this case, a Triumph is a pretty pure example of a museum. Like you take a bunch of stuff that you have, like you know, slaves or gold or a big menorah that you got somewhere. Let's not answer any questions about that. Give it back. <laughs> and you 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 parade it before the people so that the people know what they are and are impressed by them right um and like the sort of educational aspect that we would think of for a modern museum is mostly just like guys uh like philosophers or encyclopedists some rich guy probably named Pliny shows up researches your deal, writes about what he thinks your deal is, and then some other guy receives that knowledge via scroll, right? So but he doesn't usually Wikipedia. like collect yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Blog. Y- y- yeah. 
I mean, this is just museums today, to be clear. Like, curators just, like, write exhibition catalogs and just tell people what the art is about, right? And mm. not actually ask communities what their art is about. This was revealed to me in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> but crucially, your, your, your Pliny or whoever generally doesn't take the stuff itself. He just writes about it. Um, where you do have large collections of stuff, it's mostly art, it's mostly statuary, and that tends to be either religious or private. Um, next slide, please. As we absolutely blast through a very stupid and very uh, Eurocentric version of history. So, uh, by the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church, you may have heard of these guys, Whoa! has a has well, accumulated hold <laughs> <laughs> has, has accumulated by default a huge amount of this Roman statuary, uh, which they like, but it's all too pagan to like make much uh, religious use of it. So you can't just put it in a church, generally speaking. Um, and so you know, at some point, somebody goes to goes to the Pope, Pope Sixtus the Fourth. Should not be legal to have Sixtuses who aren't number six. I think. Um, well, you had to get says, the number six somehow. Twenty-five or six to Pope. <laughs> so they, thank, they, thank you, they, William. <laughs> they, they, they go to Sixtus the Fourth, and they're like, "We got to do something about these fucking bronzes, man." I, I, I keep stubbing my toe on like Lau Cohen and his sons. It's filling, he, it's you filling gotta... up my spare rooms. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 got bronzes, <laughs> I, I got bronzes out in the backyard. They're just getting rained on every day. I got bronzes. I got bronzes on my sidewalk. My neighbors are complaining. <laughs> yeah, we got to put these fucking bronzes somewhere. And so the Pope says, "Okay, fine. We're gonna we're gonna put a big fucking public warehouse for them. We're gonna call it the Capitoline Museums." Uh, and that's in 1471. And shortly thereafter, they found the Vatican Museums, uh, which is you know holds a bunch of marble like this. Um, this is in time for the Renaissance to be happening. Ross's favorite so, period. That's right. And so there is an interest in, like, these guys start going, well, how, how can we use this for religious purposes? And the answer is, uh, you just get a bunch of your guys to have a look at the, you know, the forms and the methods and try and, like, imitate them. Uh, and so you end up with this, like, uh, sort of backward-looking interest in old pagan art we inadvertently create the Civic Museum again after uh, you know an experiment in Mesopotamia, and eventually shit continues in that vein until uh, the Grand Tour is invented and people invent looking at things, which later becomes uh, known as tourism. All right, excellent. We've 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 created the modern economy through the museum. I fail to see a downturn, a downside here. <laughs> don't worry, there isn't one. Please don't ask about the Elgin Marbles. Just. I just mm. I just love that like the core conceit of like looking or of of art is that you look at the thing like that's it mm -hmm. like there's like people dress it up really nicely but all throughout human history human beings have loved looking at things and like that's it yeah look at look at this cool little like clay lump I made oh, um, yeah. hey, hey look look hey look at that hey look look at that <laughs> guys. Guys, you would not believe the knockers on the statue I found, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, are we getting into Venus of Willendorf discourse now? <laughs> that was the oh my god. <laughs> Next slide, please. So, meanwhile, as this is bubbling on, we also have the Enlightenment happening, right? And it's, it's sort of precursors. 
people start to develop things like you know to the scientific method and shit. But this is largely done by sort of like wealthy gentleman scientists who consider themselves to be the intellectual heirs to your your Pliny or your fucking uh, Galen or whoever else. They're right? just they're just more Wikipedia editors. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Also exactly. You didn't go with pre enlightenment. <laughs> but these guys can travel uh, thanks to sailing ships uh, uh, and shit like that. These guys can go all over the world or pay people to go all over the world and bring them back shit that they can keep in their house. Uh, th like, this is sometimes called a cabinet of curiosities. Um, and we see a good example here. This is this is the Cabinet of Curiosities, the museum, of a guy called Ola Wurm, but his name looks like Ole Worm. Ole Worm. Ole this Worm. is our Ole Worm's garage. This is Ole Worm's stuff house. <laughs> <laughs> I just really wanted to get Ole Worm in here. Uh, just, just because that's a good name, man. Um, now... Obviously, since we talked about triumphs, right, looting stuff off of foreigners to put on display predates these, but it gets a lot more efficient, it gets a lot easier, you can get a broader array of shit, you can get all kinds of, like, biological specimens, uh, you can get uh, seeds, so you can start planting botanical gardens. You can, you can, uh, and you so can buy stuff for cheaper, it doesn't cost a whole talent now, it's just a doubloon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so uh, some of these guys start letting people in to see their cabinets of curiosity. Some of them start charging for it, some of them don't. Uh, but the, the history of the modern museum is essentially these weird guys keeping stuff in their rooms, being bought out and subsumed by institutional power. Um, and in particular, as the sort of like institutionalization of education rolls on, universities get more powerful, and universities start to eat the collections of these guys that are associated with them. For, for um, more on universities, please check out our universities bonus episode. That's right. Um, this is why a lot of British university museums are named after one guy, like the Hunterian for William Hunter, the Ashmolean, the Pitt Rivers, you know, stuff like that, is because it started out, the nexus of that collection was one guy and his weird shit. Next slide, please. So, this is successful enough, and universities are successful enough, that by the 19th century, you start to see... Uh, once again, purpose-built buildings for this. Um, and also, at this time, everyone is jerking themselves off about how Greek and Roman they are. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Or they're jerking each other's off about how Greek and Roman they are, because oh, that's, yeah. you know, what the Greeks and Romans did. Um, well, I didn't like to talk mm -hmm. about that bit, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so everybody's just building... each other off, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, bu buildings that look like uh, temples. And we get the synthesis of guy who keeps stuff in his house, scientific tradition, and religious object of devotion tradition. And they look around for something that's sort of like civic, but also Greco-Roman to call them, and they alight upon museum. And so this is the genesis of the modern museum. This is the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford University. It's relatively typical. It was built 1841 onwards. Uh, now, the 19th century. I mentioned it's easier to get things. One of the reasons it's easier to get things is because of uh, colonialism. Next slide, please. Oh, hell yeah. 
Heck of a response, Roz. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my sort of like prototypical example, we'll talk about a lot more later, of uh, just colonialism in pursuit of stuff to put in museums. Uh, This is the Crown of Abud. It's part of a hoard of like Ethiopian gold. Um, In the 1860s, we, the British, uh, defeated the Ethiopians at the Battle of Magdala and literally just booked it with a bunch of their stuff. Uh, it was like something like something like fifteen camel loads of gold. Um, this this is currently at the V and A, uh, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Um, we've offered this back as a loan if the Ethiopians renounce any claim of owning it. <laughs> wow, that is heavy handed. Now, somehow, they did not go for this deal, uh, so it's still there with a bunch of labels that do not explain. How how we came together? Uh, I could explain why, uh, aside from like the obvious reason why um, Ethiopia wouldn't accept it. There's also like a separate thing here, which is that so the reason the VVNA I I'm guessing would not want to loan the reason you wouldn't want to loan an object to somebody who has a potential t- property title claim is that they could then keep it and then use like you know potentially I guess in this case I guess international courts to try to say that they still own it. So before leaving it from your jurisdiction, you want to make sure that you has no uh, liens or claims. Um, and so that's why they would not want to loan it without losing, you know, mm. without making sure the property title wasn't free and clear. Yeah, because you, you, you make them pinky promise that they're going to give it back, but what if they don't? Right, because if, if, if you say that you don't own it, then they have to give it back. <laughs> <laughs> there was an uh, uh, incident uh, uh, similar to this with um, one of the A4 class uh, Grizzly Pacifics. Um, Actually, uh, maybe we'll get into that later. I I could do some asides about railroad museums and railroad artifacts. Um, (laughs) Was that the Dominion of Canada? I think it was the Dominion of Canada. They wanted the the Expo Rail wanted to, or the, the National Museum of Transport in England wanted to get it on loan, and they really didn't want to give it over because they were afraid they wouldn't get it back. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Next slide, please. So we talked about how excavation and archaeology are linked to the history of the museum, right? Uh, This is sort of a broader period of that, right? Because this period of 19th century archaeology is absolutely rapacious, right? You you have guys from all European countries uh, dynamiting their way through sites trying to find shiny things. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the Parthenon was like pretty well intact for a long time until the Victorians got their hands on it. Uh, oh yeah, you <laughs> you can see on the bottom left here with the stick and the pith helmet. That's Lord Elgin taking the uh, the freezers, the marble off of the uh, the fucking top of the Parthenon. Um, now it it's sometimes said that this is done for like safekeeping. And that's basically never true. Like, aside from the sort of like idea that nobody was interested in keeping these things uh, preserved where they were, nobody thought like this. Nobody wrote like this. Nobody said anything about preservation at the time. It was purely a like, this is an interesting thing that will bring uh, me and my country wealth and glory, and allow people to like educate themselves and like uh, you know experience uh, a, a diversity of cultures that we've subjugated, right? And this is wildly popular. This is uh, an absolute craze in Europe and in the United States, um, and 
all types of shit get stolen. Um, at some point, there's going to be a content warning, I guess, because we're going to talk about significantly darker shit than this. But oh, I need the the Elgin marbles are marble and therefore white, so most of the stuff we would talk about would be darker than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, no, they used to be painted. Oh, that's which a good we'll, point. We'll they used to be painted. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Museums sort of evolved from this just sort of like staid university hall over time. And I figured what we would do for this next part is talk about some different types of museums. Uh, next slide, please. Ah, so here, yes, Crystal Palace. Exhibitions. Great yes. exhibitions. Uh, oh, a fun. Look at look at the like peoples of our empire and their quaint native folkways. Look at our our industry and our technology, right? Um, and so this is tremendously influential in a lot of ways. Like uh, this is where Victorians get shit like chinoiserie, right? Is seeing uh, you know like textiles and patterns from uh, from China or from Japan, and just going like, yeah, I'm going to steal that and, and like incorporate it into my thing. Um, and so this is like imperialism in full swing. It requires an empire to do this. It requires a shitload of uh, of ships and guns, but it also requires an emerging leisure class, right? Uh, it requires a bunch of people with top hats to walk around looking at things. Yes, and you got your um, you got you got your you're showing off artifacts from your conquered areas. You're showing off the industry that you're using to. Enable you to conquer areas more quickly. You're showing off like your um, you know, your mechanical prowess. You know, the the, the one of the things about the great exhibition here with the Crystal Palace is even even the building itself was, you know, just sort of a statement thing. You know, I was like, look, look at this huge fucking glass and cast iron thing we can build with British engineering. This could never this could never be done anywhere else by anyone because we're the best because we're British. Um, yes, <laughs> and and sometimes this is an explicit competition. Like that's what a world's fair is: is everybody gets together and builds a pavilion for their country to try and show off and dick measure against everyone else. I always right? liked that how the uh, thirty nine world's fair they put the um, uh, they they put Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union right across from each other, <laughs> <laughs> like two fort. Yeah. Uh, Next slide, please. Like another example of this, uh, which which I like because it's one of those sort of like inflection points for modernity. Uh, this is the Great Pan American Exhibition in Buffalo, uh, which is also where uh, an anarchist managed to kill the president of the United States. Ah. Yeah, so you guys haven't done <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. The communists managed to uh, end the Holocaust, so. <laughs> hey, you guys remember that time you killed, uh, what was his name, Frick? Was it Henry Frick? Oh, no. Henry Clay Frick? Yeah. <laughs> Henry, Henry Clay Prick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may have also been us. I can never remember which plots are which. Mm -hmm. mm. I assume someone will get real mad at me in the comments and then call me stupid for not having an encyclopedic knowledge of every plot that's ever gone down. No, and I to that I say, thanks for the Patreon money and also blow me. I believe yes. Henry Clay also, Frick was uh, killed by an anarchist. Yes. No, he was. He was attempted, attempted to be killed. Yeah, oh, attempted work, to be killed. Alexander work. Berkman. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Once again, Emma Goldman's boyfriends do be trying to kill people. Um, Maybe it's her king. Or was her king. Maybe she, yeah. you, know, you know. Meantime, listen to uh, The Ballad of Shogosh from the musical Assassins. Anyway, uh, next slide, please. Uh, Liam, this one's all you. Oh, no. Oh, no, this is actually me. I, 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 I was going to... Justin, this one's all you. Okay, so, you know, one of these things... Yeah, I don't think that was me. It would have been tight, though. These, I'm kind of bummed. Comes, it comes with these um, exhibitions, right? Like, um, especially the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, uh, is you have, um, you know, the sort of national mythos you're trying to build up. Um, you know, and one one show that traveled around through not just ex- exhibitions, but around the uh, around the United States was uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West, right? Buffalo Bill Cody would, um, you know, come with this big traveling circus, right? And they'd show off. The, the 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 life on the western frontier you know he had and he had you know he had real cowboys he had real indians he had real stuff you know like they did horse riding they did rodeo shit right and you're 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 doing this as like a method of entertainment but it's also supposed to be educational he usually advertised his show as being educational and sort of a traveling exhibition which is trying to ingrain some kind of you know, uh, national mythos, I guess, into the people of the United States about, yeah, we're, we're frontiersmen and all this crap. Right. And it's, it's very, it's very much a lot of, a lot of, you know, propaganda. It's a lot of, it's, it's, it is, it, it is a very late 19th century thing. <laughs> mm. And like it, it had people who had participated in these things, right. including like Native American leaders who would like uh, j- just like on exhibition. And it's yeah. weird how the, the the like the museum or the the exhibition has this ability to like shrink real people into exhibits, right? Sorry. Even though they're the same people. Sort well, of there's a also human like a zoo. Human zoo, yeah. Was yeah. the well, we'll, we'll get like, there. Yeah, we'll we will, get but, there. Yeah. There's also yeah, like a, right. a there's a leveling that happens here where it what it does is it takes something that happened actually within living memory for all of these people and then uh, turns it into history, right? Literal in that like history is something that people tend to view as a neutral ground, and so this is like a major font of a lot of museum organizing of the past ten years, which is to say that museums are not neutral, exhibitions are not neutral that there was always a political statement that is being made with these kinds of things. Even though um, at the time, I think Buffalo Bill would have said like, oh, this is an educational thing or whatever. It's like, no, this is, this is making claims here, right? Um, and, and it's just like, we, we are not past this as much as it, like the actual facet of this is unique. We, are, we still do exhibitions that are somewhat like this. Maybe not with people who live through the thing, but certainly with events that have happened in recent memory. And sometimes with people reenacting the people who live through the thing, right? Uh, people yeah. from those who descend from those communities, you know. So, right. how, how much of our uh, view of like uh, Civil War history is through Civil War reenactors, you know, who are mm-hmm. like old, old, uh, old guys in their like sixties, you know, trying to reenact these battles that were fought by teenagers, you know? Sure, <laughs> but like even <laughs> even how even much stuff is like through the South edu- is through the lens yeah. of. Well, lost cause bullshit nonsense. Like, yeah. I would say, you know, having grown up north of the Mason Dixon and 20, 25 miles from Gettysburg, you know, there's, you can go onto the battlefield and see the colossal Virginia statue with Robert E. Lee 
today and like you know you're gonna form your own narratives whatever but like the fact that i think especially in the united states the way the civil war is taught in different places is indicative of the fact that like no all this shit is political yeah, and and the living history aspect of it, like you can you can go to a, a plantation site, yeah. and you can get a tour from uh, an educator who is portraying a slave, right? Uh, and this this is a tremendously weird thing to like uh, have that like taught that way, I guess. Well, it's it's making. I think there's like a level here where like marginalized people have to like. Um kind of like portray their their own oppression right and like mm -hmm. and that there's a literal version which is what you're talking about in the form of um you know like an educator you know having to like be an actor but even just like if you're say a person of color and you become a curator of say like african-american art right like your very existence in the field of museums is one of having to you know essentially be the advocate for the thing because people don't value it right and so mm. that forces you to then kind of like have to live out um, racism and oppression just to like have uh, the cultural products <laughs> of, you know, your community be seen as valuable. And this is why yeah. a lot of, you know, African-American curators in the United States and museums don't last in their job for more than a year or two. Well, if you constantly yeah. have to basically what feels like beg for a seat at the table to explain your own history. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of national mythos, though, I have a next slide, um, which is that you can go fully, full, full national pride with this stuff, right? Um, and the example that I have here is the Imperial War Museum, museum. in London. It's a great, it's a museum. great museum. They've they've done a great deal of of like uh, useful work within a within a framework within a building even that is very much designed as a store of glory, right? Uh, and that's that's like for a long time the dominant narrative of what a national museum could be was it is a place where we teach this like. Uh, uh, this like narrative of victory of conquest of glory of empire right right uh and you know this is not purely a british thing by any means um you can you can get into this with like museums whose only purpose is sort of civic pride like fort mchenry for those of you in the united states uh mm. is pretty great at this I, I could talk mm. about the National Mall in the Smithsonian because I since I work at the Smithsonian. Like, oh, please yeah, do. Please okay, yeah. so here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. So in the Smithsonian, we talk a lot about what the guiding mission is, and this is this is all very public. So I'm not saying anything that's like untoward here. But the the goal of the Smithsonian, as it was instantiated, was for was quote to increase the diffusion of knowledge. Um, there's very serious questions about like whose knowledge and like what knowledge, but um. The actual physical site of the Smithsonian, the physical site of the National Mall, is a place of national myth-making. I don't think that's news to most of your listeners. But the, the, the thing is, is that what's become kind of odd about that is that the Smithsonian has a lot of museums that aren't just, you know, the Air and Space Museum. You know, the Air and Space Museum, heavily backed by <laughs> uh, defense contractors. Um, you know, the Natural History Museum does a lot of scientific work that is heavily backed by corporations that benefit from that scientific work. Um, and the American History Museum. Those are kind of like the three big flagship institutions of the Smithsonian. But it also has the Anacostia Community Museum, a community museum, museum built around art made by people in the District of Columbia or around the District of Columbia. 
it has my museum, the National Museum of African Art, which is about specifically the continent of Africa um, and its diaspora. Um, and it, it it's weird because the whole thing exists to like sell a particular notion of America that we kind of have been talking about throughout this podcast so far, namely that, you know, imperial power, our culture is so strong, blah, blah, blah. But like in the recent years, I, I will say that the Smithsonian has done a good job of attempting to kind of like take a more leading role on these things. For example, uh, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, which, you know, has taken take, took a big role in acquiring like objects that were generated during the um, uh, protests around the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, uh, to put those in museum collections and to say that these things that are happening right now are part of, uh, you know, the, the kind of darker side of our history that people don't often think about. Um, mm. so I, I just want to, like, wow. I will credit that one good thing, but generally <laughs> the national mall, like when you walk on the national mall and you work in the, especially if you work in the Smithsonian is like, you know, tourists getting off of buses to go look at dinosaurs, to go look at big planes, to go look at the Batmobile in the center of American History Museum, you know, uh, to 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 walk in when it's 95 degrees down to the Washington Monument and go like, yep, that's a tall pillar. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> it's an obelisk, Jeremy. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's an obelisk. Excuse me. Um, but like at the end of the day, like the National Mall is this like really weird space that it also as somebody who has been lived in D.C. for three years uh, is a place nobody in D.C. really goes to. <laughs> And if yes. you do, that usually yeah. says something. Like, if you're somebody who runs on the National Mall, that usually means that you, like, I don't know, that usually means that like, you work on the Hill or some shit. You, you like, are you a know? defense mm-hmm. contractor or something. You some are a defense contractor, yeah. right. Yeah. Real yeah. people yeah. don't go to the National Mall. Sorry. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, this is, it's this weird sort of, like, small in Philly too. antiseptic space. All yep. of, there's a lot of spaces like this. The British Museum yes. is like this, even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, next slide, please. And here is your warning for where we get into uh, the exceptionally bleak shit, right? So, uh, a zoo is a kind of museum, since we're talking about kinds of museums, right? And that raises a lot of thorny issues also about uh, conservation and tourism and people, you know, driving through a nature preserve throwing, uh, like, sandwiches to bears and stuff. But even stuff like panda diplomacy, right? And, like, uh, th- all of these concerns towards things like animal welfare or whatever that are, like, uh, affected by other things and compromised by other things because we live in a society, right? But... This is where we get into the real shit, because anthropology and zoology have not always been uh, sort of separately considered disciplines. Uh, next slide, please. Oh, because right, we did this shit, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. Very, very Quite long, a bit. <laughs> very racist history of putting human beings in museums and zoos, and the line between those things being quite blurred. Uh, whether that's whole living people, whole dead people, parts of dead people. Um, what you see here is a fake Congolese village that Leopold II, uh, that Leopold II, um, had built on the royal estate in Turveron, uh, where he exhibited 267 people uh, behind a fence uh, in order to entertain the public, right, with their folkways. Um, 
Now, I will point out that they had to put up a sign asking spectators not to throw bananas or peanuts. So this is sort of the level that we're we're pitched at in terms of like European. Uh, well, I, I mean, they still do that. Yeah, to they their still do that. I've, I've been to soccer <laughs> matches. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And of course, like. Even being dead is not enough to get you out of the clutches of the museum, right? Like, uh, whether that's medical schools or anthropological museums or, uh, like, ethnographic museums or whatever, there are quite literal skeletons in closets. Um, the, the Penn Museum somehow managed to get their hands on uh, the, the dead kids from the moon uh, bombing. bombing. Yeah. yeah I, has it, I had them in a storage closet, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And this is okay. So I I looked into this heavily because I was so galled as like a collections professional. <laughs> like I was just like I literally am the person who inventories the objects, you know, and stuff like that. You kn I know what's in my database, and I was just like when they said that they like just didn't know. I like did some digging, and it was like it was very clear that the uh, the lead anthropologist there had worked with those remains, had presented those remains multiple times to like graduate students and undergrads. Uh, 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 was very aware <laughs> that these things were in the collection, and they just like didn't do anything about it. It's just like it's just like so fucked up that people would think that in for an event that was not that long ago that that was okay. That was like yeah, it was, yeah, it was so, the eighties. How, it was how the fucking eighties. How did the remains My, even get there? Right? <laughs> you would you kind of get the sense that the change in the museum within like Europe or, or the US, right, is less. Uh, it is bad to do this thing. It is bad to like exhibit a human being or a part of a human being, uh, but more. Uh, are we allowed to talk about this to non-museum people? Right. Uh, yeah, and I will say that like most natural most natural history museums have some amount of like human remains in their collections. They just don't display them anymore. And I I, I will be somewhat charitable and say that it is a certainly a font of most people's uh, uh, plans for the future is to like number one priority get rid of the human remains, make sure they get buried, and go back to the people they need to go back to. The mm. uh, I can't speak for every museum, but it's certainly a priority in the Smithsonian. <laughs> Now, I mean, my question is, and I think this is a fair question, but I ask it without prejudice to the answer, right? Which is, knowing this, having talked about this, is the museum, right, separable from this legacy? Is is a museum always inherently on some level going to be a colonial instrument, or can you sort of, like, excise this in any meaningful way? That's a great question, and I generally err on the side of, I don't think museums should exist. Um, some uh, <laughs> anti-museum action yeah like i don't like the prop like my job should probably exist but it probably shouldn't be about museums right like like here's the thing is like museums as a as a physical structure <laughs> as we've demonstrated through these slides are are not uh they they exist to benefit the state at the core even if they're privately owned or if they're privately owned they also exist to benefit rich people right because that's something we haven't talked mm. about yet is like the rise of private museums by uh, billionaires. Um, and they, like, at the end of the day, museums, they reinforce the status quo, and that even if the people involved in them, and I know that many of the people, I know many of the people involved in them have good intentions, the core of it is who's in charge of the museums? Well, the directors are all rich people. The boards, they're really rich people. You know, the donors, they're really, really rich people. And those people have a very particular agenda of what they want you to know about history. Um, and that as a museum staffers, 
we are limited by that stuff because we cannot piss off our donors. And that model mm. itself, the very model itself, um, is going to lend to things like imperialism, colonialism, racism, all the bad things. Because we are not doing things for the public and we're not doing things for the community. We're doing them for our donors because that's what allows us to stay open and pay our paychecks. Um, let's let's talk about that with the next slide. This reminds me of... Um... I, I, one of the things we maybe should have put in this notes somewhere is something about like the Barnes Foundation and how when oh, we try yeah. and, you know, try and uh, have a museum that specifically benefits, in this case, historically black colleges. And then suddenly the board manages to wrest the whole collection away from the uh, rightful beneficiaries and owners. Um, I don't remember. And then Philly takes it and you're yeah. welcome. <laughs> mm. You could suck on that, Laura Marion. But yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely recommend watching. Although go into it with an open mind, the art of the steel. Art of the steel is uh, a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a yeah. little heavy-handed, but one of the guys uh, who's interviewed in that a lot, Robert Zoller, he used to write insane articles for the Drexel Student Newspaper. Um, and then I realized as I grew older, from uh, that actually no, he was completely right in everything he said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have I have a slide here which is essentially about the difference between if you like the the soft and hard ways of influencing museums because we've talked about the soft ways which are like the expectations that are already there the people who are in control of them the people who those people hire um, you know what what they're sort of expected to do but. There's also the sort of like blunter instruments, right? The ways of influencing what a museum is, right? Um, and my picture for this is from the US National Holocaust Museum. Um, and you may recognize this poem. It's at, it's at the end of the, the exhibitions by the exit. Um, it's by Martin Niemöller, right? Uh, and Essentially, the Reagan administration made them change the first two lines of this poem and substitute the word socialist for communist for fear that it would be uh, too sympathetic to communism, right? This is the least subtle example I can think of of explicitly leaning on a museum to, uh, to essentially do historical revisionism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it, as we've said, not just applicable to public museums, uh, like it, private museums, are susceptible to anybody's whims. But especially like if there's any public funding involved at all, uh, like when when Piss Christ was exhibited at a private gallery, mind you, the National Endowment for the Arts had its budget cut as a consequence of that, um, and so. Absolutely everything is on the table when it comes to uh, like censorship through revisionism. The, the the sort of like editorial control is available provided you have that lever. But like conversely, uh, because museums are almost always desperate for money, right, um, and influence, if you can offer them either of those things, you can get a lot of things out of them, and this is where we get things like oil companies sponsoring climate change exhibitions, right? Yeah. Uh, because y if they can pay for it, then yeah, you can you can absolutely greenwash your company's reputation by having Shell presents, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion or whatever. Uh, like, so two things here. One is like, for example, a Bank of America sponsored um, a Smithsonian to do a bunch of. Um, 
stuff about like, you know, a bunch of talks about, you know, race in America and stuff, you know, like that's a Hmm. good American example, very recent, very public. So I'm not, again, not saying anything that people can't go find out. Um, And then I've also been involved in many an exhibition where, for example, that we did an exhibition at my last job where we, it was an uh, exhibition about artwork involving the um, US Mexican border. And the artists involved in the exhibition didn't, weren't super crystal clear about like, hey, you know, this is like, they, they, they were really focused on it being a crime against humanity and didn't really have like any policy prescriptions for it. But like, uh, there was a decent amount of us in the museum who wanted something more crystal clear there. And the, it, at all points, when you're trying to generate content in museums, people are extremely concerned about, well, what is our community going to think? And this was in Arkansas. And people were like, well, we don't want to piss people off too much. And it's like, but but this we're lying to people, right? At the end of the day, and like, hmm. people don't put the same concern on marginalized communities. They don't worry about traumatizing marginalized communities with exhibitions about you know colonialism or whatever. Yet those exhibitions, those the, those collections, the very existence of those exhibitions is a form of trauma for those communities. Is a form of uh, continued marginalization, and we only seem to care about what white people think about art mm. you know like in this in these reagan examples with piss christ and stuff right we only care about what christian conservatives think and then that means that we need to stop doing x but when marginalized communities are concerned it takes a much much bigger uh uh spate of organizing to like get museums to even push it back a little bit mm. I, th- uh, I think another another slide, one is like please. even like it's not just big corporations who influence this because if you go to a if you go to a railroad museum south of the Mason-Dixon line, there will always be, and it doesn't matter how big or small the museum is, it could be one of those ones that's like a shed in a little town, there will always be one Jim Crow car preserved, right? Yep. Immaculately. Mm. Um, and, and you will walk through, and uh, you know there'll be one section that was for the whites, there was another section that was for the blacks, and they look just about the same. Because the car is immaculately restored. And in fact, when the car was brand new, those sections look just about the same. But, you know, that doesn't reflect how the car was maintained over its lifetime, right? And then somewhere on the side, there'll be a little plaque that says, this restoration funded by the Daughters of the Confederacy. Right. right. <laughs> and um, it's, it's if you want, if you want, I, I was thinking about that, too. Uh, I was at the National Constitution Center with my parents a couple weeks ago. And there was an exhibit on the 13th Amendment, and it had been, the way it was portrayed was that the North was sort of a monoculture of abolitionism, which of course is not true. There are race riots in Philadelphia and New York and Boston. Boston rioted about busing in the 70s and 60s. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it 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 was entirely... The South is full of dumb racists, rich dumb racists, and the North is full of you know, gentle Quakers, and there's no other, you know, no one in the North would ever be racist, you know, certainly not towards, certain. certainly they would not, you know, be pro-slavery, and I mean, it just, it was, it was not in contact with reality, and it was one of those things where you're just like, even, like, you know, you, you can't, you can't fucking tell the story without completely telling the story, like, that's just not true, and that's, I think, the narrative Going to school in the North, certainly. Um, Roz, I don't know if you can, you know, I know you went to school and quote the South, but, yes. you know, we were certainly taught that, like, even, again, north of the Mason-Dixon line, also York County, northernmost town to surrender during the Civil War. We gave up without a fight. 
Um, <laughs> for a bit of history there. Uh, you know, we were we were taught blah 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 states' rights, blah blah blah, a little bit slavery. But like when I was a kid in the fifth grade, my class made a stars and bars, made one, made one, a patchwork stars and bars, uh, and like we were not taught at any point like that that was a problem. It was that they were, you know, they were just different white people from us, and they just had different beliefs, and we just sort of ended up in a war. And I live in fucking Pennsylvania. Hmm. If you want another railroad example, go to any German railroad museum. <laughs> Ra- rail- railroads, the the Deutsche Bahn, the sole exception to the process of Vergangenheitsbewältigung. Uh, absolutely no desire to like. It's it's them and fucking corporate websites that are like, uh, yeah, the company was founded by in like 1923. Uh, we developed a new product line in like 1933. Then in 1953, uh, we developed a second <laughs> new product line. Uh, yeah, so not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, next slide, please, where I get a little bit more theoretical with this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is sort of. A little bit of a theory of mine, right? I feel that there's, to any curation, to any museum, there's a sort of a flattening effect and there's sort of a derealization that goes on, right? Uh, it's like how we were talking about uh, like living history, or it's like how we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, Buffalo Bill, right? Like stuff gets shrunk and stuff st- doesn't feel real, even if it is, even if you're looking at uh, the actual place where something happened, or you're talking to the actual person who did something, it feels like a museum exhibit. And a museum exhibit is something that is dispassionate, and it's clinical, uh, and it is like emotionally distant from you, right? Um, but also, if you're not very careful with curation, and I don't say this as an insult to museum curators, right? Because a lot of a lot of exhibitions are very closely curated. But you can also do this thing where you sort of like cram a bunch of shit into a room, right? And you end up with the ancient Egypt room, uh, which is you know it spans thousands of years of history and like uh, an absolutely huge breadth of human experience. And you go, oh, that's the ancient Egypt room about ancient Egypt. There was a thing called ancient Egypt that happened in ancient Egypt times, and then after ancient Egypt, it was Roman times, and then after that, it was Viking times. Um, and so it, it leads you sometimes to this sort of um, like quig view of history, right? It's the same with art, where you you sort art by periods or by like filiation and genealogy. Uh, you, you separate artists into uh, schools or movements that they themselves might not have subscribed to, uh, and and you create this this interconnectedness that wasn't necessarily there in the first place as a way of understanding it. Um, That's really it, interesting. Yeah. Well, and like uh, I work at an African art museum, and the fact that there's even like a concept of like, hey, all the Africa stuff goes in the Africa art African mm-hmm. art museum, right? Like Africa, a one of the seven continents. Uh, yes. One of the most populous continents in the world. Nigeria itself, just on its own, is one of the most populous countries in the world, one of the highest GDPs. Like, you know, the, there are uh, something like a couple hundred ethnic groups in Nigeria itself, right? And yet uh, we have one very small museum in the United States, part of the Smithsonian, dedicated to African art. Mm. This idea of monoculture as oppression. 
I think, is it, by you were right, Alice, by shrinking it down and sort of saying you all fit into this neat little box. You know, when certainly if you said that basically to a white European, you would get either the no, I'm 100% Italian, baby, or whatever <laughs> fucking insane thing. I think be very proud of that. But conversely, like, no, it just all goes into the neat little Africa box. And, well, and yeah. it doesn't even just go into the neat little Africa box. It's a step further where what the takeaways are are very simple, right? Which is to say, like, for the ancient Egypt example, it's like, as Alice was saying, ancient Egypt moves into the Greeks, moves into the Romans, right? The only role that it's allowed in history is to be a segue, as opposed to something mm, that is yeah. valuable on its own, could stand on its own, and was, uh, you know, in the case of ancient Egypt, lasted for hundreds of years. <laughs> and, and, and to say nothing of the Nubians. <laughs> yeah. But also, contained people, contained people whose names we know, right? And like, uh, in particular, there's this thing about putting shit under glass, right? Presenting it for, for exhibition that can really uh, sort of like suck all of the humanity out of something. And it leads you to consider it in sort of this dispassionate historical way. Right. Instead, instead of like thinking about people from the past as people. Well, and so uh, something we haven't talked about is that one of the one of the changes of museums that happened, you know, post uh, the kind of 1800s formation of museums is that uh, the way that we kind of got around this whole imperialism thing was to be like, okay, well, we're also preserving things, right? We're keeping things, we're keeping culture, quote unquote, whatever that is, safe for future generations, right? Mm. And that that preservation, though, uh, has a way of kind of, you know, making everything appear neutral and like putting things under glass, like Alex was saying. And it's like what a what a beautiful segue to my next slide. Oh, wow. By the way, I keep thank you for that. Knowing what we're doing next, and then I just do it. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you so I'm much for not clicking show, ahead. I don't know what I'm doing next. But. <laughs> you can see where I was clicking. I was not clicking mm -hmm. ahead. Yeah, so I, I wanted to talk a bit about about how you can't win with these decisions about preservation and restoration, right? Uh, because, like, again, it's the question of like separability from from like a a, a viewpoint or a legacy, right? Like, uh, my example here is uh, painted statuary. We've sort of uh, more recently come to understand that a lot of uh, uh, like. Uh, antique statuary was pretty luridly painted. Uh, we've, you know, seen reconstructions of that painting, but also, you know, that having left it unpainted uh, in, in a state of decay, right, uh, created a, a huge swath of, of, like, art and culture based on imitating this, this sort of, like, ruined art. Thank you, um, John Ruskin. That's right, <laughs> yeah. And so you, you you sort of can't win. I feel like th this idea of like uh, are the museum's role is to preserve. That's something that has been invented after the fact, right? Uh, a lot of the stuff that it's being applied to was not collected for the purpose of preserving it. But now that it is a thing that people are willing to talk about, you, you get into some serious questions of. Should we present this painting the way uh, you know visitors here have seen it for two hundred years, and everyone expects to see it, or the way that it was, uh, you know, the way that it looked the day after it had been painted? To what extent do we have to like try and halt aging and keep stuff in stasis? Uh, and is there a like historical role for an aged thing? Well, and there's like a you know, in terms of the field of conservation, the field concerned with you know 
this kind of stuff. Like the general best practice, for example, for paintings is that so with paintings, we can match pretty much most colors uh, pretty easily. Um, and that the so when you restore a paint or I, I even I actually hate the word restore when you when you repair a painting and put new color on it, what you do is you do it like one shade off of what the original color was because you don't want to make it obvious. You don't want to make it super. You don't want to you don't want to make it seem fake that it's like, oh, this is actually what the historical object that was given to us looked like or, or like mm. and when we got it specifically like when we got it, you want it to look a little bit off. And that is a deliberate move generally by most conservators. Um, but, you know, you raise good questions. I was like, why is that the case? Like, why do we fetishize kind of the, the, the notion that this thing is really old and it still looks this good as opposed to a kind of like a ship of Theseus situation where, you know, the Mona Lisa at this point is basically just a, a new painting, right? It's been touched <laughs> up so many times, it, you know, Who's to say where the original painting begins and the uh, various cons- con- conservator touch-ups have, have stopped? Mm. Well, it also sort of applies even to, like, modern art, right? Um, in that it's not necessarily, you know, let's say, displayed in, 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 in the most authentic manner, right? I, I'm, I'm thinking in particular here about Mark Rothko, right? Because, um, you know, you see a Rothko painting it's usually in a nice, well-lit gallery. And, you know, these paintings were intended to be viewed in very low light. Um, that was, mm. that was one of the, yeah. uh, one, one of his original intentions, you know, you get more intensity of, you know, the experience of color and all this stuff. Right. But, you know, that's, that's never how they're displayed. It's always, you know, you, you're, you're in this gallery and you sort of, you know, it's, it's okay. This is a, this is red in a different shade of red. All right. I, whatever. I'm moving well, this, on to the next yeah, one. Yeah. This, this like really gets into sort of one of the things that really interests me, which is like, you can't jump into the same river twice, right? You can't experience the same artifact from the same standpoint as the people in history as it was designed for. Even for the person who walked through the same gallery five minutes before is going to be viewing a different thing differently, right? However much you try to curate that experience. And, like, you can be really, really annoying about this. You can really fuck with curators on this because you can say, oh, you claim to be preserving this Velasquez, but you're not showing it under candlelight. Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. Like, with, you know, in the case of like a Rothko example or in the case of like even Impressionism, actually, Impressionism is probably a better example. Impressionism now is viewed as this kind of like quaint thing where a knockoff is in your mom's bathroom. But at the time, it was a deeply radical thing. And people don't view Impressionism as a radical thing anymore. So like any kind of lens by which anybody's looking at Impressionism is not intended at all, right? You know, that we just like, oh, look at the pretty flowers or whatever. Mm. At the time, Impressionism pissed people off. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So my, my next slide, this one, this one's all you, Jeremy, because I don't know shit about labor. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah, let's oh, let's talk about labor. Okay. All, all all I know about labor is that museums take a lot of hard work to make them stay up, and they don't respect it. Yeah. So I so the first thing I'll talk about is like who works in museums traditionally. Like so traditionally in museums, so to get into a museum, you have to have both an undergraduate and a master's degree. So already you're looking at people who are capable of affording both of those things. Second, there's usually some amount of unpaid internship time that needs to happen. Depending on which part of museum, whether it's like collections, 
or curating, which is at the more extreme end, you might need two to three years of unpaid internships to even get an interview. And that's still not a guarantee. Um, obviously, this is a bad thing and uh, people are trying to change it. Um, the really interesting thing is that a lot of museums talk a big game about the importance of you know, being part of their communities, being good to their workers and stuff. But then the minute there's a whiff of unionization, you know, the uh, we, we hired an anti-union firm. This is going to break up the family. <laughs> All the classic stuff comes out. And, 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 and you know, a lot of it's coming between a union will only get in between you and your Etruscan bore vessel. <laughs> right. And, it, and that's and the exact and that's ex the exact point is that museums uh, almost always will side with objects and care more about objects than they care about people. And it's a really good question for all of you to ask yourselves is like, why is it in society that we privilege old objects, but made by dead people over currently living human beings? Um, mm. And that is something that I've been asking myself the longer and longer I've been in this field, where what if the museum is less about objects and it's more about experiences? It's about community. It's about, uh, uh, you know, education and actually living out those things that it says rather than like just fetishizing old stuff of often dubious uh importance you know like I oh yeah there's there's a colossal amount of uh fakes and like uh like bodged together reconstructions from the past right like but, and, or like even take rothko i fucking love mark rothko i started in this field as a security guard standing for eight to nine hours a day with very minimal breaks having to go on a radio to 40 people to ask to use the fucking bathroom right <laughs> like that's how i started in this field and I spent a lot of time looking at Mark Rothko and I, you know, you know, I spent more time with Rothko than most people have, but here's the thing. I would gladly trade all of those Rothkos if it meant that everybody I know in museums could have a good living wage. Right. And it turns out that Rothko is really expensive and that people sold those that we could maybe give people a good living wage. But that's like, I, I, I could see myself at the end of that shift trading Rothko's entire cannon for a chair. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or just yeah. even a cushioned mat to stand on, which we did get for a while, which was really nice. Um, I will say, when you've been standing all day, the difference between standing on a hardwood floor versus a nice cushioned mat is feels like a, a feather bed. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but as far as the contemporary unionization drive goes, like it, you know, uh, museums, a, a lot of museums. Are, are in the process of attempting to unionize or have unionized. Um, the problem has been that, you know, museums have been, specifically private museums, have shown their willingness to just kind of fire everybody. Uh, this happened about a few years ago with the... Uh, You're telling me that the Getty family don't like it when they work as unionized? That's crazy. Right, God. exactly. The, Marci <laughs> the Marciano Foundation, um, the minute there's all their guest services staff uh, voted to union... or. or announced they were unionizing they just fired everybody and closed the entire art foundation like just closed the whole thing down because it was a vanity project for the marciano brothers um and you know it i think it's really revealing that pe museums sit talk this big game about being so important to communities but yet even insofar as they're even remotely important to communities which i actually reject that most museums are important um, most people don't go to museums. This is like a thing that we don't talk enough about. Like 99% of people <laughs> in the world will not go to your museum. Full stop. Mm. Full stop. So who's that 1%? Who's yeah, going? How, how, many, how many museums have you visited multiple times? For right. me, it's like the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania and not much else. <laughs> 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 and that's uh, only because they have a, uh, a, a annual rails and ales. 
where you can go drink beer with <laughs> oh, that sounds friends. like a waste though oh it's fucking great it's yeah. great if, mm. if it happens next year that's maybe can maybe we, we should all go there <laughs> Yeah. Can we also talk about worker safety in museums? Oh, yeah. So um, I have also been an art handler and friends with many art handlers. And so um, a major problem in the art handling field is that most art handler positions are contract positions. Specifically, most of them are in New York City, L.A., the big art cities. Um, and those uh, contractors have very little protections under U.S. employment law. And so with the rise of contemporary sculpture being so big and monolithic, you know, think of your, your Jeff Koons sculptures, think of your, uh, you know, your big like metallic public art pieces of crap, you know, like that stuff requires things like cranes, special training, you know, you even get close to it. You're wearing a hard hat and that because they're contractors, when they do inevitably get injured, because here's the thing about art, that's a little bit different from working in like say industry, or at least my understanding of it. And, uh, you know, Justin, please correct me if I'm wrong, but like in art, we're not really allowed to drop something, right? Like, you know, I will do everything in my physical power to not drop a $40 million painting. And in fact, in fact, have been in my, and been in the position where like, oh, I was lifting a giant um, Audubon elephant folio, which is like, just like a truly massive book. You know, it's like, the thing is like four feet long. Um, and my friend and I were taking it down because I needed to inventory it. And we took it down and we were holding it and my arms were shaking. I'm like, Michael, I cannot hold this thing. And I'm like, well, you need to hold it or we're going to drop it about 10 feet down onto the floor because we're like high up on ladders when we're doing this. And it's like, I just like kind of like willed through it. And then like my arms were hurting for like weeks after. And that's like a really minor example. But I've had friends who've uh, blown out backs. I've had we've had contractors that we've used who are moving crates where uh, full several hundred pound pedestals have fallen on them. And then, like, you know, dudes just walk off the job because they don't have health insurance. They don't want to put a claim in. They don't want to get fired from their job because they put a claim in. And so, uh, you know, a lot of art handlers have started to unionize or have tried to get some kind of employment protections in because it is a very brutal field because what we're asking you to do is often has to be done with your hands, without machinery. Um, and you have to follow whatever bullshit rules an artist comes up with to handle an object. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Jeff Koons' new thing is a uh, like a big fucking spear with a worker on the end of it. Um, I imagine even just I imagine just even just a really big painting is also like a huge hassle. Though. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've moved uh, Jackson Pollock paintings that were you know I probably twelve feet wide and eight feet tall, and like that's something you do with like ten people because you have to do it by hand and you have to lift it onto a wall. You got to hang it, um, and if you drop it. Like you, you know, that painting is uh, insured for $36 million. There's no equivalent in our society for something that's so discreet yet so valuable. Mm. And it's nerve wracking. So, Handling art is yeah. very nerve wracking. Well, I would imagine. <laughs> is, is there hope for unionization, though? Is, is there a positive note to end this slide on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say that, you know, a lot of museums, uh, you know, there's a, there a good amount of museums that unionized in like the 90s. And then there was kind of like a kind of a, a, a big death knell of that. And that recently there's been a huge spate of it. And also, even if museums are not actively unionizing, I can guarantee you that pretty much every museum has had conversations about it. I can guarantee you that people have organized within their museums without doing a union, for example, um, opposing new projects that would um, take advantage of people or require things like, you know, the equivalent of crunch 
you know, work a whole other thing is working on exhibitions. The like two to three weeks before an exhibition, you're usually looking at working like 80 hour weeks, depending on how big the exhibition is. Um, people have organized against that. So they might not be forming unions, but they are putting pushback on directors. They're going, they're doing things like going to the press about abusive bosses and they're getting those people fired. Um, and, uh, and, and racist bosses and stuff like that. So I actually am very, I feel very encouraged every day, um, at my, uh, comrades and colleagues for trying to make the museums, a museum's a better place to work. Um, I, you know, we just really just need the people in power to get the fuck out of the way so that we mm. can actually make museums what they should be. And what I think the public, at least in the U S deserves, right. You know, I can only <laughs> speak to U S cause I work for a public institution, but like the, the, you're the taxpayers of things like the Smithsonian. Like, you know, we exist for you. And, you know, if we're only just serving rich people or we're only just serving corporations, then we're not living out that original mission statement of to increase the diffusion of knowledge. It's to decrease, increase the diffusion knowledge for who, right? Mm. And it, it should be for you. And so that's what I just want to like let people know that in museums, the actual workers, we want to make it a better experience for you. And it's all the people in power the corporations that get in the fucking way of that. And it's very frustrating, but also there's a clear villain. And the great thing about clear villains is they're easy to organize against. Mm. Speaking of clear villains, I have one more problem with the museum, right? Next slide, please. And that is, once you have the word museum out there, just anybody can call their shit a museum, <laughs> right? And it gets a bit of the sort of like imprimatur, gets a bit of like academic clout from calling itself a museum. Uh, you don't, it, it's not a particularly protected term anywhere, as far as I know. Like you can, you can put a museum up saying whatever the fuck you want, such as young earth creationism. Uh, but you can also like use a legitimate museum to uh, sort of like launder the reputation of a, a dubious actor, whether that's uh, a nation, whether that's a company. Uh, and for instance, there's a, there's a giant uh, franchise Louvre in Abu Dhabi, uh, which is like hilarious to me. It's great. There's a massive, uh, a massive modernist building there. Uh, which is like designed to make you go, "Ooh, look at the pretty art." Not ask any questions about the slave labor. Uh, which yeah. you can do, like uh, you can do, like a big statement museum, like uh, you know, in Bilbao. Uh, you know, your big deconstructivist building, you just build it, and then it's like, well, everyone's going to come from all over to see this thing. Or you can do something like, and now everyone's copycatting that. Like, there's even like a big deconstructivist art museum in Roanoke, fucking Virginia. Now, oh, sure is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's finally going to put Roanoke on the map. It, it did. It's already on the map. <laughs> um, and then, and then, and then, one of the weird ones is I think you can have like a a, a museum that's trying to push some like naked ideology, um, but which does have some actually interesting artifacts. I'm thinking like the Museum of the Bible in Washington D.C. I understand well, is actually their, they don't have them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because oh, the FBI well, they made, yeah. made them give it back, right? There's also like the Spy Museum. Like Which is the, genuinely uh, interesting. The Newseum was a big one. Oh, God. Um, yeah. You, you know, and then... Um, and the then, CIA yeah. has the, uh, the axe that killed... Trot the ice pick that killed Trotsky. Yeah, police museums are fascinating, and they usually run by police departments. Oh, we're going to get cancelled again because you want to be a cop. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get into no, Scotland Yard's museum. Jeremy was a security guard at a museum, so that that's also kind of a cop. Basically, so, a kind yeah, of cop. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just me walking here. up to you, getting paid twelve dollars an hour to go. Like, please don't touch that. <laughs> uh, there's two there's two things i want to say here one is that with weird museums i encourage everybody to google branson missouri if you don't know about branson oh, missouri oh yeah oh <laughs> yeah um, there's a lot of weird museums in Bran- branson missouri i'm just doing some light googling here and we have the titanic museum attraction which Ooh. is just a rich guy who bought up a bunch of titanic relics and now they're in branson missouri we've got the world's largest toy museum which i believe it means the largest version of the toys not that it's the largest toy museum <laughs> yes <laughs> yes <laughs> um the celebrity car museum which is that sounds great um and other things like that so that's like the kind of like funny end and then the other end is that the tax shelter museum which is to say rich people founding museums uh because they want to show off their art collection and that hey added bonus uh, don't have to pay taxes because the art is owned by the museum, not by me. Mm. Um, and actually, the 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 requirements under U.S. law to be like a tax free entity as a museum are not super rigorous. You know, they're 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 somewhat rigorous, but they're not that rigorous. There's been some a lot of serious questions about, like, for example, museums founded by rich people where you need to make a reservation, right? So, like, one of the things is like the museum has to be open to the public. Well, what is open to the public? Right. And so, like, a lot of museums you can just walk into. And you might have to pay a ticket or you can get in for free. Uh, whereas a lot of these rich people museums, you have to like make a reservation and like their actual like the facility might be like gigantic, but they do like 2000 visitors a year. And so it's like basically just like a place to store their art tax free. And I will tell you, the taxes on art can be very expensive. Uh, and it's, it's it's something that a lot of rich people are really concerned about not paying taxes on their art. Uh, could do a whole other thing about free ports. Hell yes. Well, you, uh, you next gotta, slide, please. You got another kind of museum, which is the Reputation Laundering Museum, um, by mm-hmm. which oh. I mean the Henry Ford. Or the, yes. uh, or the whatever, <laughs> yeah. the Crystal River Museum, the one in Arkansas, Jeremy's favorite. Oh, Crystal Bridges. Crystal Bridges! Uh. Yeah, I work there. Crystal Bridges is pretty good. I mean, you know, it was founded by the Waltons, but the, the actual, <laughs> like, in its in the community, it's pretty decent. People go there, like, four times a year in Arkansas. And like that's actually probably better than most museums, but yeah, it it is very much exists at the reason of one person, which is a really serious question to ask. Like, why does it exist? Because one person wanted it to exist. Hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit. I wanted to disappear entirely up my own ass here, right? <laughs> yeah. And talk about sort of theoretical alternatives for radical museum praxis, right? So. A Rothko uh, in every home. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the reason I, the reason I was thinking about this was because anytime a Confederate statue gets taken down, finally, uh, it's always be, it's always said of it that it's being sent to a museum, right? It's being it's being warehoused it's be, somewhere, being sent to a museum upstate where it can live out its life <laughs> yeah. happy in the field. <laughs> yeah, it's it's being sent to a museum for its crimes, uh, but like. <laughs> I can tell you what we don't want them. I'll tell you that. I know, but you're getting them anyway because uh, that—that's like the sop to people who want to see them stay up. Is they're gonna be on public display and they're gonna be studied and stuff. Then they just—they uh, just sent uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and his statue to uh, the, the, like the National Museum of the Confederacy. Um, uh huh. <laughs> 
Um, Which nation? The winning one. Uh, yeah, so there's... <laughs> so, I, I want to suggest that there are different currents in, uh, in reimagining the museum, one of which is to improve the existing museum from the inside, right? To to uh, to unionize museum workers to like uh, attempt to exercise some kind of like bottom up control of content, right? Uh, but there's also uh, different kinds of museums. You can have a museum that is intended to present things like social history, like uh, say. Uh, we have like a model tenement flat uh, on display in Glasgow. We have a people's palace, which is full of social history exhibits. Or you can have museums that are explicitly from marginalized perspectives. Um, Jeremy, you mentioned the National Museum of African American History and Culture earlier. Uh, I think that's tremendously important. Oh yeah, and uh, extremely popular and probably one of the best museums in the country, honestly. It's backed by that community. It is intensely important to it. People talk about how transformative it is. It's really, really concerned about addressing the needs of like regular people. Um, it's they, it's have, good. they have the only mm. properly presented Jim Crow car in the country. Um. Yeah. Me but meanwhile, while while you guys are fucking around with like actual material improvements, I am out here reading the work of surrealist Andre Breton. Uh, and the picture for this slide is a collage, an art installation he made called The Wall, right? Um, about which he said, Isn't the real significance of a work not the meaning we think we give it, but the meaning it is likely to take in relation to what surrounds it? And Breton was very interested in uh, the wall as a sort of a magnetic surface, as a sort of contextualizing surface, right? And one of the things that he posited was a musée imaginaire, a museum without walls, something that uh, like fulfills the function of a museum without needing to be in a building with columns out the front of it, which is displaying a load of shit, right? And that's partly what this collage is about. It's like it is a collection of stuff that invites you to try and like make connections between it and make sense of it and contextualize it. And it's sort of deliberately designed to frustrate you in that. It's a lot like that um that AI generated name one thing in this picture image, right? Um so I that that's my sort of like open question is 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 there uh, a meaningful a meaningful hope for a sort of like deconstructed museum? I, I would ask why what if museums didn't have objects, right? Like what, mm. what if, you know, I always think about, I'm actually doing a presentation on this, like in a few weeks about museums in 3021. It's like, what would a museum in a thousand years in the future be about? And like, to me, I think that the museum should not be something that just exists in a few different places, but in fact exists everywhere and is shows the creative and cultural talents of the people in every community. Um, but, but is not wedded to objects and instead wedded to connections between people and wedded to uh, uh, you know experiences. This is why like I don't like hate most of the Instagram museums because like people obviously have fun at those things. Like, what if art, what if all of art was just like less serious than it is? Is something I think about a lot because like all of this stuff just is like museums is like very serious. And it's like, what if it was just posting? Like you know, like like you know. <laughs> That's that that was my final question right on the slide. Is is the internet a museum? Right, exactly. Like. It, <laughs> 
you know, I, I, I see art every day on Twitter and it's not that it, that the art is like people posting the art. The art is just like the kind of like riffing, like when Twitter is at its best, it's like the art that's like where people are just riffing off of each other. They're operating in shared languages, you know, and all that kind of shit is like actually kind of pretty solid. Um, whereas like going to look at things and having to have somebody tell you what it means is like really not great. Um, and and mm. and I think that like the internet is absolutely a museum. Video games are a museum. Walking around in nature is a museum. Going to the grocery store is a, like a grocery store is a museum. Like you know, um, we present objects in the world and we take them in in a lot of different ways. <laughs> mm. So we have one final slide, which is about the most urgent uh, sort of cause of decolonizing the museum and radicalizing the museum, right? Which is what I can broadly summarize as all the shit we stole. <laughs> yeah, so these are, the, these are two of the Benin bronzes which were taken during what is, what is called, and I say this in scare quotes, of the Benin Punitive Expedition, which was mm -hmm. done oh, by wow. uh, the British who... Uh, Hi, how about... Who, uh, sounds like something out of Soldier of Fortune magazine. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they raised uh, Benin City um, basically to the ground, and a bunch of dudes like stole all the stuff that wasn't nailed down. I mean, they did this because like a couple of British soldiers were killed. Um, and the... The, 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 the Benin bronzes were actually parts of the royal court of Benin, which is a centuries-old monarchy that continues to exist today. Um, the king is called the Oba. The o there is still an Oba of Benin. Um, there's been many Obas of Benin, um, and they would like the objects back. This is a, quite a clear ask um, from the Nigerian government and from the people of Nigeria. Um, most of them are in Britain, but a number of them are also in Germany, um, I believe France, and there's a few in the U.S. as well. Um, and uh, uh, Professor Dan Hicks wrote a really great uh, book called the, the Brutish Museum about these bronzes and the history of them and what the asks are to give them back. I highly recommend that book. Um, it's very good. Uh, and museums, I wanted to just talk about like why museums don't want to give stuff back. And you might be like, okay, well, museums just don't want to give stuff back because... Uh, you know, we own it now and we won. It's like, nah, that's that's that used to be the case. Now it's like museums have come up with all these fancy reasons as to why. So, for example, mm. to be like there first off, there's like the kind of like imperialist patronizing thing, which is like, oh, Africans in Nigeria could not take care of these bronzes very well. They don't oh. have climate. They don't have <laughs> climate control. They don't have, you know, good safe storage or whatever, which is just like pure racism. Um, and then the, mm. there's the other level of like, well you know, we could share them and that would be great for both sides. And it's like, yeah, but if they're asking for them back, it's their property. And that's the core thing to me, right? If we're going to believe mm. that property exists, then like they have the better claim to the property uh, because it was their property and they should be able so, they should be allowed to what to do with it. The disposition, this is a, my personal opinion now, is the disposition of it doesn't really matter to me. Even, even if there was serious questions of whether Nigeria could care for them well, which there isn't, it can care for them perfectly fine. Even if there was serious questions about that, that's not our problem because we stole them. If you stole, uh, your, like, say, my laptop, and then I went, I went to you and I'm like, hey, can I have my laptop back? And you said, well, you weren't going to take good care of it. <laughs> that still doesn't mean you get to keep my laptop. You stole my fucking laptop. I don't, well, it's up to me to decide what the fuck I do with it. 
Remember slide two when I said that the invention of law was a big mistake? Right, exactly. <laughs> this is this is particularly relevant for, for Britain because the our greatest weapon in the fight against ever having to give back any of the shit we stole is a legal contrivance uh, in the form of the British Museum Act 1963, right? Uh, which explicitly forbids the British Museum specifically from ever disposing of any artifact in its collections unless it is of no academic use to anyone that like could visit the museum it's deliberately extremely restrictive wait wait the british museum can't deaccession things uh, like a gigantic indiana jones style warehouse full of crap <laughs> they have to build a new one every day because of all the shit they have in their collection that they just want to get rid of and can't and they can't display it. I mean, there is there is definitely something to be said about a lot of museums have a lot of stuff that's just crap that they just want to get rid of. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess the, Brit the British, British Museum here is having to build a detailed uh, inventory landfill. <laughs> Genuinely, th there are <laughs> there are precisely. Four circumstances in which the British Museum can dispose of an object, and that's if it's a duplicate, if it was made after 1850 and is primarily made of printed matter, if it's unfit to be retained and can, can be disposed of without detriment to the interests of students, or if it's become useless to the purposes of the museum by reason of damage, physical deterioration, or infestation. And if it's not in one of those, well, however strong the moral claim is, the British Museum is forbidden under statute from giving it back. And this has been ruled to extend to even shit like looted old masters from Nazi Germany, where people will go, hey, that's my grandmother's Rembrandt, or whatever. Uh, and like, here is a photograph of me as a child with this same Rembrandt. Right. The High Court will fully just be like, yeah, that's very interesting. Still can't give it back. Uh, because that's that's what the statute is. It's up to Parliament to change it, and Parliament has no inclination to. So, tough shit, I guess. Right? Yeah, exactly. I'm reminded of. I, I I'm going to bring it back to railroad museums again. I'm reminded of. <laughs> yeah. I'm reminded of Steamtown in um in in Scranton, Pennsylvania. If you if you go to um if you go to Steamtown, there's this walkway that goes from the mall at Steamtown. Where they demolished half the downtown to build a mall that was going to revitalize the town didn't work, um, and you go over this rail yard full of just uh, you know this this collection of rust, just these these old old passenger cars which have had no care in like sixty years at this point because uh, there's just parts of the collection at Steamtown that they've decided. Uh, we'll get to that eventually, and eventually it was 60 years later. And some of it's very interesting and valuable equipment, and some of it's just, you know, uh, Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western uh, multiple-unit passenger cars, of which there's uh, about a billion hanging around. And it's, all, it's mm. all just sitting there rusting, and because they can't curate their collection, they hold on to everything. Um, just going to keep rusting. And this is, you know, part of uh, uh you know it's not just like you know if i guess if they had fewer artifacts they still might not be able to care for the interesting stuff but 
you know, the, the collection is bigger than can be effectively preserved. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to drag people down too much because there have been some notable successes in returning uh stolen and looted artifacts, right? Um it's just that there's also it's like the tip of the iceberg. There is a lot more shit that is staying where it is. Uh and the biggest sort of concession anybody's willing to make is to express regret, mm-hmm. maybe. And that's literally what I had. That's a museum. Yeah, that's, museum. that's the problem with museums. There's so much. There's so much shit wrong with museums. And we got out of here by seven. I was about to say. Yeah. Can I just say one thing, just to put it at the end of the podcast, yeah. just to cover my do a little yes. bit of CYA here. Uh, yes. So just to cover my ass, the views that I've re- uh, said do not represent the views of the Smithsonian Institution, the National Museum of African Art, or any other entity that I may or may not work for. Uh, and if. If people want to find more of those views, where can they yeah, read If you them? want to find more of those views that are not the views of my institution, you can find them on Twitter at PorchRates, P-O-R-C-H-R-A-T-E-S. Uh, I used to run a <laughs> blog where I rated and reviewed porches. That was my original claim to fame, and then I deleted it because I'm an idiot, and now I just talk about museums. <laughs> what if the museum has a porch, or is that a portico? Actually, you all museums porticos. are porches. All museums are porches. <laughs> All right. A map. Yes. All right. Uh, well, I think that was the episode then. Wow, we did it. We did it. Bye, everyone. Yeah. Uh, all right. Good night, everyone. We're about to record a second episode now, but without yeah. Jeremy. Yeah, thank so, you, because I'm going to go yeah. make some stir fry. So. All right. Uh, fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Jeremy. This was thanks, a really Jeremy. good episode. Yeah. No problem. It was nice to meet Alice and nice to yeah. talk to you again, Justin and Liam. Hopefully you guys can come down here. Uh, well, not Alice, but uh, hopefully oh, you. Oh, Sometime. Oh, Sometime. Oh, oh, well. oh, that's as long as I'm Well, no, because right Alice is in the UK, isn't she? Yes. Yep. Yeah, okay, yeah. She is. So, you know. Well, Justin and Liam, you might guys want to come down to DC. Alice, if you can come across the pond, you know, that could happen I, too. I, 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 oh, yeah. we're, we're, we're trying to arrange something. We're working uh, on it. Yes. Yeah, we, uh, Julia and Secret I live in a... podcast discussions. There is a dive bar next door to our apartment. I'll just tell you that, you, you, y'all that right now. So. Anyways. All right. I'll talk to y'all all right. later. All right. Thanks for coming Bye. on, Jeremy.